Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor at GBC, and it's my prayer that as we think about the blueprint for the tabernacle, the Holy Spirit might speak clearly to us about His plans and purposes. In this week's message, we move into the final section of Exodus and the construction of the tabernacle, the Lord's dwelling place with His people. The Bible reading today comes from Exodus 25, verses 1 to 9. Offerings for the tabernacle. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver and bronze, blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins dyed and another type of durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense and onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastpiece. Then let them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. Aren't you glad that our offerings are a lot more simple, right? We don't have to kind of pile up the, uh, you know, the stuff for the breastplate and the, you know, the dyed ram skins and the goat hair in various piles. It's just, it's a lot simpler now, right? Um, we are, uh, starting tonight, we are entering into the very last section of the book of Exodus. Uh, and like any good story, it follows on from what has preceded. Now, so what's preceded for a very quick review is this. The people of Israel have been brought out of Egypt by the power and might of the Lord. But instead of leading them directly to the promised land, he's taken them on a bit of a divine detour. He's taken them down to Mount Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, he has entered into a special, unique, formal relationship with the people of Israel. So from chapters 19 to chapters 24, we've been focusing on this um, covenant ceremony. It's a little bit like um, a modern-day wedding, shall we say. Uh, There is a bit of a proposal. There are vows back and forth where the people agree to be the people of God and live according to His character and that sort of thing. And the Lord promises to be uh, their God and provide for them and protect them and all of those sorts of things. There's the the, uh, symbolic actions back and forth. There's even a bit of a reception that takes place at the end. Uh, And uh, now that that has taken place, the next natural thing to take place happens, and that is... Now that they're married, God moves in with them, right? And that's essentially this last section of the book of Exodus, as the Lord moves in to live with His people. Prior to this, He had guided them in a pillar of cloud and of of fire, and He'd kind of wandered along before them, and they'd followed after Him. But now things are different. Now they're in a special relationship, and so the Lord is moving in. He is going to dwell with His people. And where he is going to dwell is in a place called the tabernacle. And it is these instructions that Moses receives on the mountain. So the action shifts from the foothills where Moses has been with the people to the top of the mountain where for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses receives instructions about how to construct the tabernacle. Now, the tabernacle was um, a, a, a relatively, well, a large tent, but not as large as you might think, that had two rooms inside of a, a water courtyard. And to give you some perspective, the courtyard would have roughly fit inside of our auditorium. 
Uh, it was approximately as long as our auditorium is wide and was about as wide as our auditorium is deep to about that berm at the back wall. That's the courtyard. The tabernacle, so the two-part tent, that would have fit quite comfortably on our platform. Uh, the tabernacle was not quite as deep as our platform and not quite as wide. That's the, that's the, the tent that they created for the Lord. The, the first room was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It was a square room, probably actually cubed, same height as it was wide and deep. Uh, and uh, in the most holy place, there was one piece of furniture. It was the golden Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was a box uh, covered in gold that contained in it the tablets or the written down agreement, the covenant between the Lord and His people. It was stashed in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, and on the lid were two cherubim whose wings stretched out over the top of it and nearly touched each other on either side. Uh, the most holy place was then separated from the holy place by a curtain. And in the holy place were three uh, pieces of furniture. There was a seven-branched uh, lampstand made of gold with buds and blossoms holding the lamps. There was a golden uh, table where they regularly replenished fresh loaves of bread representing the provision of God. And there was a, a small altar of incense that the priests would burn incense on when they came in for the rituals and ceremonies associated with the worship of God. Uh, there's a whole bunch of information in these chapters about um, the uh, the garments uh, that the priests were to wear, with special attention played to the role of the high priest. He was the one who had the breast piece, uh, and uh, on that it was made of gold, and there were a number of jewels, 12 of them, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel with their name inscribed on them. So whenever the priest went into the presence of God, he bore the people of Israel on his heart so to speak, and represented them before the Lord. Now, there's a bunch of information about the anointing oil that was to be used and the incense to be used and all of those sorts of things. And then in the courtyard, there were two pieces of furniture. So you had one piece in the most holy place, three in the holy place, and then there were two in the courtyard. They were both made of bronze. So there's a, a shift of the things that are closest to God made of gold and those things that were in the courtyard made of bronze. There was a bronze altar of sacrifice and there was a bronze basin that was filled with water for the priests to wash in and those sorts of things. And that's essentially the courtyard and the tabernacle. Uh, and uh, this is what we are told about, starting in chapter 25, the passage that was just read for us, all the way through, essentially, to chapter 31. Uh, chapter 30, so you got six chapters of, of, of instructions about how to build the tabernacle, followed with uh, an introduction to the two men who will oversee the construction and a little bit more about the Sabbath day. And it's obvious to us as we read this through that this is really important for the author. The author has thought this is really important, and he's indicated that for us in two ways. One, he's given us six chapters of information on it. Anytime you take a book that's not actually, not actually all that long, right? The, the book of Exodus, all the way through from beginning to end, is 40 chapters long. Six of them are dedicated to the instructions of the tabernacle. And so not only has he paid a lot of attention to the detail, but he's also then basically told us the instructions twice. That's how important it is. 
So we have all the instructions given to Moses here in chapters 25 to 31. It's broken up by the incident with the golden calf for dramatic effect. And then after that, we basically have the same instructions repeated again. Now, good modern English writing style would have summarized one of those, right? We would have just summarized the last several chapters by saying, and the people of Israel built the tabernacle exactly as God had said. Done. In good Hebrew writing style, the author has basically duplicated the instructions with one change. The change being, instead of saying, you must, he changed it to, they did. Uh, And so we have this really significant story. We can tell just by the sheer volume of information that the narrator wants us to to get something out of this. And like so much of the the book of Exodus, we kind of have a sneaky suspicion perhaps by now that this story, like everything else in Exodus, probably gets thought about and reinterpreted and echoed and reflected upon again and again all the way through Scripture, even in the New Testament, and you would be right. The problem for us is that we feel that we're missing something. Because while I've just told you that this is a really important section of Exodus, this is what you end up reading. Selected somewhat at random, Exodus 26, starting in verse 7. Make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle. Eleven altogether. All eleven curtains are to be the same size, thirty cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain of the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over on the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red, and over that a covering of other durable leather. And it goes on and on for six chapters. Now, um, recently, in the last three or four weeks, I've started a new habit, or something that I hope will stay a habit, and that is the first thing I do in the morning after I turn off my alarm is I look on the YouVersion Bible app and just spend 10 or 15 seconds reflecting on the verse of the day. I've only been doing it for three or four weeks, and so there's lots of verses I probably missed, but I have not yet come across Genesis, uh, sorry, Exodus 26 verse 7 as the verse of the day, right? In fact, none of this has ever shown up as the verse of the day. I have yet to open it up and see, make curtains of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, the verse of the day, right? Which, case I'd probably go back to bed to tell you the truth, right? So this is the sort of stuff that I tell you it's important, and then you read it, and you're like, I'm missing something here, aren't I? Like, I'm surely missing something. And so what I want to take some time to do tonight is to try to help us make some sense of why the narrator tells us so much information about this and why he duplicates it in two places, and the significance not only for the original story, but also for us. And the key, I think, to unlocking the bit of a mystery is actually to remember that the tabernacle was built so that God could dwell with His people, that He would be present in their midst, not leading them in a cloud or sending His angel before them, but actually living within the camp. I have a tent and God has a tent. He's as bigger than mine and a little bit more elaborate, but basically we live in the same neighborhood. Like we live side by side. He's with us in the camp. 
And that, that truth that God is now with his people is actually really helpful to keep in mind. Let's say for the moment that you've never read anything in the Bible. You haven't read the story at all, and you've decided to start in Genesis chapter 1, because that's the beginning of the Bible, uh, and you've wandered your way through Genesis, and you've come into Exodus, and you've read through the stories, and you've gotten to these passages, and you read here that God is going to dwell with His people. And if you had read nothing beyond Exodus 30 or 31, you hadn't got any further than that, there would be something quite striking about God dwelling with His people here in Exodus. Because that hasn't happened since Genesis chapter 3. That was the last time that God dwelt with His people, walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. You remember the story. And then when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and were cast out of the garden, they were cast out of the garden, but cast out with a promise. And that promise was that the Lord would make this right. And so, yes, they were cast out, but there was a promise of something to come. Eventually, that leads, of course, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and the promises that God made to Abraham that he was essentially, if I can summarize and boil down those promises, going to make it right. And now we have Abraham's descendants who have become a flourishing nation, have been rescued by God, brought to the mountain, and God has entered into a relationship with them so that He can be their God and they can be His people, and now He is going to dwell in the midst of the camp. Do you see the connections? There's something about the tabernacle that should remind us of Eden. And when you think about it, it's actually a little bit more than just God was present and walked around in the garden, and God is present with the people of Israel. There's actually a whole bunch of connections. I read an article this week by a biblical scholar named Gregory Beale, and he traces this theme of uh, Eden through the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, Ezekiel's vision of a new temple, and the final vision of John in Revelation of the city of God. And he traces where we see evidence of Eden all the way through these. And so once again, we see that this theme in Exodus plays its way out all the way through Scripture. But let me draw your attention to a handful of connections between the tabernacle and Eden. I've given you a bit of an overview of the tabernacle, that there was the most holy place and the holy place and the courtyard. And there was particular furniture in each of those areas. That is duplicated to some degree in the opening stories of Genesis. The courtyard in Genesis is basically the whole world, right? It's everything else. And then you have two parts of one whole, just like you have two parts in one tent in the tabernacle. In Genesis chapter 2 and 3, you have Eden and you have the Garden of Eden. We're told that the river that watered the garden flowed from Eden to the garden, leading some scholars to suggest that what we have here is Eden where God dwelt and the garden that God planted right next to His presence where He places the man and the woman. The man and the woman who are placed there are given two tasks. Their tasks are to work and to keep the garden, to work the garden and to keep the garden. 
Those two words show up together several times in Scripture, but usually when those two verbs, to work and to keep, are used together, they are in reference to priests. So the author of Genesis has used two terms that sound suspiciously like priestly behavior. In the holy place, there's a seven-branched lampstand. In the holy place of the Garden of Eden, there is the tree of life. There is the bread of the table of the presence, where there is a renewed source of bread all the time, the provision of God. The, all the trees were given to Adam and Eve to eat of as many as they wanted, as much as they wanted, the daily provision of God. There is uh, gold and jewels in the tabernacle. And in a curious detail in Genesis chapter 2, we're told about the presence of gold and jewels. It's kind of this random throwaway line, but it ends up becoming important. In both stories, there are cherubim. In the most holy place, they guard the Ark of the Covenant. In the story in Genesis, they guard the entry once the people had been cast out. Do you see the connections? The author is trying to make a really significant point here, that the tabernacle is not just a really fancy traveling tent, that the tabernacle itself represents for us something of Eden. The question is, what? And the second question is why, right? So we're still a long way from getting anywhere, but you with me so far? So when we think about why, when we think about what the tabernacle represented, there's a few things that it represents. So at the very end of that reading, the Lord says to Moses, make sure you build this according to the pattern that I will show you. Uh, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, there is a suggestion that the tabernacle was a, a copy of the heavenly reality. Um, I uh, have one of those um, Lego architecture sets. I don't know if you've seen them. They take iconic buildings around the world and they reduce them to 270 pieces of Lego, whatever it might be. Uh, and uh, I have the, the set that is the Sydney Opera House. Well, it's not the Sydney Opera House. It's a model of the Sydney Opera House, right? And so in 270 pieces, you get this little thing that looks a little bit like the Sydney Opera House. And people can come in and go, oh, it's a Sydney Opera House. And you say, no, it's not. It's a model because that's really pedantic and people hate that, right? But you see what I'm saying? It's a model of something else. And nobody looks at it and goes, oh, I have tickets to a show. I didn't realize it was so close. Like nobody confuses the two, right? There's a model and the greater reality. And the tabernacle was a model. Like, let's be serious. As elaborate as the tent may have been, it's only a tent. Surely the Lord is grander than even the grandest marquee, wouldn't you say? No one's going to confuse the tabernacle with God's heavenly home. But that is one of the functions of the tabernacle, to remind people of the reality of who they serve. This is God's earthly address, shall we say, but it's not his heavenly home. There's a difference between them. But the symbolism of Eden reminds us that the tabernacle also represented what had been. I don't know if you've ever done a big family trip or you've done a particularly special holiday. You've gone to a place or seen a band or something that's been on your bucket list, some really significant event. And you've either brought home a memento you know, the ticket stub or a t-shirt or some kind of a, you know, some sort of souvenir from that place or more likely in our day and age, seven million photos on your phone that you never look at again. But perhaps one of them you've kind of drawn out and you put on a frame because it symbolizes for you the entire trip. About five years ago, our family went overseas 
And we still have all these photos on our wall that kind of symbolize this whole trip. There are pictures of us uh, in San Francisco and pictures of us in uh, Los Angeles with a high school friend of mine and his daughters. There's pictures of us in Arizona. There's pictures of us by the Great Bean in Chicago. There's pictures of us uh, with my family, right? They're, they're mementos that remind us of a time that was, right? Of another time, another place when we did something really special. And the tabernacle functions that way as well. It was a visible material reminder of how things had been, of how it had been when there was no sin in the world and no death and no brokenness, when people lived in perfect relationship with the Lord. And because they lived in perfect relationship with the Lord, they lived in perfect relationship with each other. There was no, <clears throat> there was no war between the genders in the garden. And they lived in perfect relationship with the environment around them. There were no thorns that came up. The, the sweat of their brow was not required to eke out a living. The tabernacle is a reminder of what had been. But neither of those, I think, are the most significant functions of the tabernacle as it reflects Eden. And that's because ultimately the tabernacle was not just about pointing people to heaven or pointing people backwards. The tabernacle was meant to point people forwards. Have you ever seen um, an architect's model? You know, uh, usually in larger, uh, larger developments, right? They might have a whole cardboard model of what it's going to look like. Right? They've got the trees and they've got the parklands and the parking lots and the towers. And it's all to scale, but it's a little bit smaller. You ever seen one of those? That is a better analogy for the tabernacle. Because when you look at an architect's scale model, you are not looking at something that already exists, are you? It's not like looking at my little Lego uh, uh, Sydney Opera House, right? That's a, a model of a larger reality. What you see before you when you look at an architect's modeling is you see the promise of what will ultimately be built, right? It doesn't point backwards to anything. It doesn't point to something that already is. It is full of promise. It begs you to use your imagination and see what this would look like in full living color. It invites you to look at that empty lot and see the buildings. It invites you in to say, yes, I can see this. I can see the reality. I can see the impact. I can see the footprint. I see it. The tabernacle is not just something to point to a higher reality or point back to a better time. The tabernacle was actually intended to point forward to the completion of God's promise to make it right. It was a living, physical reality a representation of what was to come. It was a reminder to the people every time they saw it packed down and set back up. It was a reminder every time they saw it that they had been swept up in God's divine promises and plans to make it right. It was so much more than a space to worship. It was so much more than a place to kind of mark divine time. It was so much more than reminding them of heaven or pointing backwards. It was meant to point them forward to the promise of all that God would do. You with me so far? 
So you can see now, I hope, why the narrator took so much time to describe it, to give us so much detail about it and to say it twice. Because this here is where God is dwelling with His people. Again, not just to dwell with His people, not to just make it easier for them to worship Him so their commute was shorter, but to be as a promise of what it looked like or what it was going to look like in the future. When God would once again dwell with His people. And if the law had been followed by the people of Israel, then with God living in their midst, they would have begun to live one with another the way that they were always designed to. And with God in their midst and living in harmony with one another, they would have also begun to live in harmony with their environment. They become a little slice of Eden, a reminder not just of what was, but a reminder of what will be. This is really important stuff. But there's still the question of, so what? You can walk away from tonight and say to yourself, well, that's fantastic. I learned a whole bunch of stuff about Exodus I never knew I didn't know. I I understand that the tabernacle was a representation of something in the past, but also something in the future. That's fantastic. So what? Well, here's the so what. I've mentioned before that this this, uh, theme, this motif of Eden gets played out all the way through Scripture. It's played out in the tabernacle. It's played out in Solomon's temple in 2 Kings. It's played out again when you get into uh, Ezekiel's vision of the renewed temple. And it's played out again in the the book of Revelation. But let me draw your attention to a passage in 1 Peter. Uh, Matt looked at this uh, just a couple of weeks ago. It focused more on the second part of the passage. But I just want to draw your attention to how Peter opens this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. He says this, As you come to him... The living stone, Jesus, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to Him. Listen to this. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Now, if you've been following this series along, that might sound a little bit familiar because it's the language that God uses of His people. You will be for me a holy priesthood. set apart in the world. But did you hear the language of living stones? Something remarkable has changed with the advent of Jesus. And it's this. Well, several remarkable things changed with the coming of Jesus. Here's one of them. That we no longer worship in one particular place made of particular materials meant to represent the past or to point to a heavenly reality, or to point to the future. If you want to know where the promise of God's restoration exists today, if you want to know where it lives now, if you want to know the physical reality that reminds the people in our world that God has promised to make it good, to make it right, to restore and renew it, you want to know? It's in you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and all of you. Everyone who has turned to Jesus becomes a living stone, which means that the whole building is alive. And it ain't a building. It's you and me. And in our lives, as the restoration of Jesus begins to take effect, 
as we live with the presence of God in our lives through the Holy Spirit and begin to experience that renewal and experience what it is to walk with Him again, close to us, closer than anything can be, we begin to see the impact of that in our relationships one with another. We begin to see it in in relationships with our creation. And you and I, wherever we go, everywhere we are sent, you and I become the, the promise of God's future restoration. The church, you and I, together in Christ, become a physical, breathing promise of God's promise to make it right. You and I are trying to live out a little slice of the Garden of Eden. You and I have been swept up in the grand promises of God. And so while the church looks back to see what God has done and believes that there is a heavenly reality that we also point to, we have also been swept up in a future-looking movement. The church is not one that should always be looking backwards, because if you look backwards, you miss what's coming. Nor should it be a movement that is always only looking up, because we live down here. We have been swept up into a movement that can appreciate the past and recognizes the heavenly, but looks forward to the transformation of all things in Jesus Christ. And you and I, who are turning towards Jesus, have become the living stones of the new tabernacle, the new temple where God's Spirit dwells. Are you with me? Bet you didn't see that coming from the tabernacle, did you? These stories that we find in Exodus all the way through um, shaped how the people of Israel understood their relationship with God, uh, and they were interpreted and reflected upon and considered again and again and again and again until we get into the New Testament when Jesus and His disciples continued to reflect on the same stories. And they go a long way to shaping our understanding of who we are and what we are on about. How we love one another and how we forgive one another and how we show generosity to one another and how we employ courage to be God's ambassadors, as Vicki reminded us, is important because by every every step that we take towards God, we live out and play out just a small slice of what it will look like when all things are renewed. Read the end of Genesis, uh, read the end of uh, Revelation. You know what you'll find? You'll find a lot of gold and a lot of jewels. You'll find the tree of life and you'll find the presence of God. You'll also find a city rather than a garden, which is an interesting twist at the end. And there's also no temple. And there's no temple because God is with his people. And his people are with him. I'm going to invite Lex to the team up and uh, lead us in worship. And there'll be an opportunity for prayer if you'd like us to pray with or for you for anything that's going on. We'd love to do that. But I trust that you're, you're kind of picking up um, the way in which Exodus um, pitches forward into the whole of Scripture. Uh, and that as you go out this week, you remember that you're not just, you're not just part of Gamia Baptist Church. You're part of the movement and promise of God to restore and renew everything in Christ Jesus.
So let's live that way this week, eh? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called each of us and invited us to participate with you in your plans to restore the whole world. And uh, there are times when that's really hard to believe. It's hard to believe that our world, which seems so busted up and so beyond repair and so beyond hope, so hard to believe that there is hope, that there is promise. So we want to pray uh, with as much faith as we can muster up, with as much trust as we can muster up, and with as much courage as we can muster up, and, and, and to live what we believe. Now, Heavenly Father, as, as your people first constructed a fairly elaborate tent and would have seen the reminders of what had been before and recognized the, that it was a model of a spiritual reality, we also believe that they, they recognized that they were living out part of your promise to ultimately make it right. And then in their relationship with you and their relationship with one another and their relationship with the world, they were to be this living, breathing example of your promise at work. And I ask by your Holy Spirit that each one of us would grab hold of that this week. And everywhere we go and in everything we do, we would recognize your call and your promise. And I ask it all in Jesus' name, in God's people's sake. Amen. The tabernacle was a physical representation in the world of the Lord's promise to restore everything to its Edenic perfection. As those who have turned to Jesus, we are a living tabernacle, and as such, are meant to be a living representation of lives transformed by Him, a slice of the yet-to-be-fulfilled renewal of all things. Perhaps there's someone the Lord has put on your heart who needs to hear this message, and if so, it would mean a lot to me if you'd share it with them. As always, we'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website, gaimiabaptist.org.au. In this series, we'll be broadcast on the ACC TV, and you can follow New Horizons TV on Mondays at 10 p.m., Thursdays at 8.30 a.m., and Fridays at 11 a.m., and watch previous sermons on our website. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.